Hello and welcome urbanizers to another Urban Talks live series on COVID and the impact of COVID on our cities. Today we have a very, very special episode. We're going to be talking about business and innovation and we have three esteemed guests. So we have Carl McFall. Carl is a consultant, strategist, lecturer and project manager on EU city and business levels and ecosystems for innovation and digital transformation of the AI economy. He's also the co-founder of Future Navigators, which is an international network of expertise in intellectual capital management and a unique method and practice for connecting capital assets to scale financial returns. And he's also a member of the European Commission high-level expert group. We also have Clara Volintiru, who is a fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, uh, Rethink, I think is the name of the organization, and also a senior researcher for Eurofund, as well as an associate lecturer for the Academia Destinze Economice. And of course, we have our friend Claudio Vrinciano, founding partner at VP Connections, which is a strategic communication and public affairs service provider for promoting Romania in, uh, for foreign investors and also promoting business communities through smart events. He's also the co-founder of Risers.net, a nonprofit community which helps entrepreneurs discover their entrepreneurial mindset and also helps them discover complementary founders. And he's also the program director of now rebranded as Scale Out, right? Uh, which formerly is known as Startup Bridge, which is an international platform launched by Romanian Business Leaders Foundation, which helps startups and scale-ups to develop business globally. Welcome to the show, everyone, and welcome to all our guests. How are you all holding out in the current circumstances? In Romania, at least, I don't know where you're watching from, but do comment, please. Please say a quick hello to know that, we're, that, you're, that you're watching, that you're with us here live. Uh, we'd love to hear from you in the comment sections. And don't forget, you know, we're having a lot, a lot of uh, growth in our channel, and there's a lot, a lot of interest around uh, smart cities and development, and especially because of the impact of COVID and how that's going to shape our future city. So if you are interested in our content and you want to stay up to date, then please go ahead and sign up at our newsletter, which you'll find in the description of this event. We also have a special gift for all our viewers. We provide two free reports on best practices on how to develop cities and smart cities. So again, welcome everyone to the show. Quick hello. My name is Colin Whitfield. I'm your host for today. I'm a digital entrepreneur, a coach, and a trainer for, for other entrepreneurs. So I'd like to start out by asking our esteemed guests, uh, how has COVID affected business so far, guys, in your opinion? Clara, we'll start with you. Clara, right? Carl, Carl. Sorry I'm about sorry. that. So, oh, you know, oh. just, just to let our audience members know, we have four people with names starting with C, so it's going to get confusing. Well, Carl, Carl, we'll start yeah, with you. Yeah, Carl McKay, <laughs> Viking from uh, Swedia, now living in Romania. Well, you know, how has COVID affected my situation? You know, I took this uh, giant leap and risk uh, leaving my native country and selling off stuff and... Uh, embarked on this mission of uh, starting life 2.0 uh, my friends up in sweden <laughs> tries to contact me here so are you alive how's it going you know and uh, yeah. of course my, my work as a consultant is uh, people dependent very much face to face uh, i coach workshops on regional city level and business level for um, regional urban development or business development with my methods of uh, strategy tactics and operations and uh, 
how to build up innovation ecosystems, basically, whether it's a workplace or an urban environment, and what are the mechanisms to attract talent capital to a place. And uh, so that has been very sort of... Uh, uh, disrupted, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, disrupted, of course. You know, we used to talk the future navigators, my consultancy group, that uh, we talk about the outer journey and inner journey to to do this business development and to build uh, both intellectual capital and financial capital. And I mean, intellectual capital you build in the meeting with other people, you know, it's uh, external networks, your social capital, it's the human capital. Uh, all that knowledge uh, is being built by tossed to tossed, it's face-to-face -face mm -hmm. meetings. Uh, and um, and uh, so, so that, that didn't uh, work out, you know, and... Uh, 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 so, so I had to find out other ways now uh, since uh, Christmas here and uh, how am I going to survive as a nomadic entrepreneur, which is what I practice. And uh, no, so, uh, so I started to get this image in my head, uh, a tree, a tree of fruits. And there are some lower hanging fruits and some higher hanging fruits. And you need to start to pick those lower hanging fruits, which are more mm -hmm. easy to reach in order to get the energy to climb and pick those more higher hanging fruits. So what are those lower hanging fruits for me? Well, I started to figure out if I cannot sort of uh, right now uh, get my income streams working by, you know, the outer journey going physically to locations and work directly with people. Are there ways I can uh, create my income by not going directly to people, uh, to be independent of people? And then it's about building capital on capital, directly building money on money. And there is such a way. Um, it's called trading. <laughs> and it's fully digitalized. Online mm -hmm. trading. It's a skill you have to master. It takes about, well, usually they say 6 to 12 months. It's a risky business, of course. There's a high reward and high returns and high risks involved. So you really have to master the techniques, understand the technology. But then there's also, um, you are completely independent. Uh, so you can work from anywhere where you have an internet connection and you can also create your passive income machine. If you have some coding skills like I have to build your own trading robots, that does work for you 24 seven. So this is what I'm into now and started to actually uh, ramp up a little bit my financial situation so I can uh, continue with my other fruits, which are a little bit more higher hanging because it's not that direct entrance to them. You have to do a bit more work to get them going. And that's uh, also related to digital income streams. So it's of So course, the message is uh, clear there, Carlo, you know, that yeah. the, actually the, the main uh, switch that everyone has to be aware of, which of course people are aware of, but I suppose depending on how much experience you've had prior, it could be a very, very difficult thing or uh, you know, an easy thing, as you mentioned, yeah. lower hanging fruits, which is to make the switch to digital. So in terms yeah, of the impact on yeah. in terms of the impact on business in general, Carl, where have you seen like the main uh, obviously talking about the physical restrictions right now? What other yeah, impacts yeah. have you seen in business and innovation so far because of COVID? And restriction to capital yeah, markets yeah, you mentioned. I, I, I have this uh, huge international network, uh, daily presence of them uh, through my social media channels. And, uh, and uh, so I see what everyone is doing in Asia and uh, Africa and uh, Europe, United States and around. And uh, so they are all doing the same thing. The, the increase of this uh, Zoom video conferencing app, it's uh, like uh, collaborating while uh, at the same time marketing your workplace actually directly. Mm -hmm. It's like... Uh, 
integrating uh, the, the sort of open innovation dimension into your work, right? Because you publish your work directly, live and direct. So, uh, and everything which you, on the market, since I follow the markets very closely, what goes up and what goes down, it's uh, all the traditional things which require people to people meeting, which are cash flow intensive and dependent also, like, uh, you know, the, the tight cash flow uh, daily. It's like restaurants, tourism, uh, retail, uh, physical items and stuff, stores and uh, leisure, sports, everything. Th those industries are... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> everything which is about digital, you know, digital platform economics, uh, streaming services, uh, digital tools for uh, interaction and so on, they, they are booming. And, uh, mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. that's also what, what I sort of uh, use because I, I'm, as you call it, I'm writing a book. It's uh, about uh, the nomadic entrepreneur, your guide to independent work and freedom in a, life. A very timely topic. Uh, well, it's been a trend for yeah. a long time right now, but I think right now because of COVID, this is one of the things that are probably going to you know, propagate this digital nomad, at least uh, yeah. uh, interest in that kind of a lifestyle or at least way of working, right? Yeah, it will definitely boom even more now. I mean, there are about uh, 5 million people right now who directly define themselves as uh, nomadic workers. And there are about uh, 7 million more people who are entering the domain. And there are estimations that by 2035, there are 1 billion people on the planet will have some kind of remote working situation. Uh, because it also reduces for the companies and they don't have to build big office spaces with uh, concrete and steel and stuff, you know. And this also, uh, regarding Clara here, uh, is also stimulating uh, this uh, ongoing rise of the medium-sized cities. Uh, the cities who are about, as I see it in my work when I travel around uh, different uh, sizes of cities to do these uh, workshops, with the city governments, uh, it's cities who are around three to four hundred thousand people. They are. Uh, it's less costly, much more easy to gather a group of stakeholders to get the work going. They are the agile engines in this new transformation. While the larger old capital cities, who are having a function during industrialism, as you know, the harbor cities and big industries for mass production, big labor volumes, who sort of gathered, you know, but they are uh, much slower because there is a, a more complex situation of conflicts of interest and how to navigate the political bureaucracy and stuff, you know, and get things together. The small cities don't have the resources and capabilities in a critical mass. So these secondary cities, I find very interesting. That's in Romania. That's Clusion Timishvara. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Carl. Uh, Clara, then, in your opinion, how has COVID impacted business as usual, as they say? <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, first off, I definitely subscribe to what Carl just mentioned. Um, and uh, probably I'm going to get uh, into it a little bit further in the discussion. But um, just a brief uh, highlight. We developed a local business environment index on Romanian cities for the past three years. And if in the first year we had clearly Bucharest ranking first along all dimensions, we were looking at innovation, we were looking at entrepreneurship, public support, local government support, um, and across and capitalization, right, access to funding. Mm -hmm. um, and across all dimensions, um, secondary cities were rising, but Bucharest was still on top. And last year, it was the first year when Bucharest was outranked completely um, uh, across all dimensions, right? By Cluj and Mishara. So I, I definitely subscribe to, to what Carl mentioned. But uh, what I would like to point to is the fact that we are seeing an acceleration of existence trends. Uh, 
Um, so my take on the impact of COVID on, on uh, cities and businesses um, is basically uh, an acceleration of major, ma- major trends that we were seeing for the past year. So, um, for example, I think cities were the drivers of the national economies for a while now. I think it's five years since we had that striking statistics that 80% of the global GDP was produced by cities. Probably it grew even more uh, in the meantime. Um, you know, in comparative terms, London is the same size as uh, the Netherlands economy. Uh, or New York is the same size as uh, the Spanish economy. So um, mm-hmm. cities were the mega producers, right, the mega economic um, uh, marketplaces. Um, and I think that was very badly hurt by the current isolation measures and um, the pandemic. So um, I, I think what we will see um, accelerating in the future is the reshaping of a new economic model, if you want, making cities sustainable, making cities, um, you know, the whole green economy uh, process. And um, you, you see that already in some um, leading cities, right? Outliers, you see greening cities like Stockholm, Carl, maybe uh, again, you, you might uh, have more to say on this, or Paris. Um, and interestingly enough, coming to our, our part of the globe, I think in Central and Eastern Europe, you have a rising or, um, or um, optimistically um, um, action by uh, cities to, to follow suit on this path. Um, so, for example, at the end of last year, even before um, the COVID crisis, you had something uh, that was called the Pact of Three Cities, with four capitals from Central and Eastern Europe committing to following uh, green objectives and uh, promoting mm-hmm. sustainability in their cities, Budapest, Bratislava, uh, Prague and um, Warsaw. Uh, and also in Romania, you see this trend in Cluj, for example. Um, so I, I suspect you're going to have soon enough uh, benchmarking of good practices in, in this regard. But um, it's not enough, you know, for, for uh, economic agents to be innovative, to have, um, you know, new solutions from startups, to have um, the tech industry um, providing solutions. You also need support from public authorities, from local governments. And what I expect in the future is to have a much closer partnership um, between the business environment and um, local public stakeholders um, and a much more stronger, um, you know, visionary leadership from the public sector. Um, and this is especially challenging in Central and Eastern Europe because traditionally here, actors um, in the public sector have been um, putting on the hat of administrators. Whereas what we're looking at in this new economy, right, in, in the post-COVID world, we're looking at um, um, a severe need for innovation, even in the in the realm of public sector measures. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully we're going to get this type of visionary leadership um, in the business sector, as well as in the in the public sector, with local governments getting more and more responsibilities as we move along. You know, um, uh, on the topic of leadership, I think you just uh, open up a can of worms here because it's a it's a sensitive topic. It's a controversial topic. You know, anytime I host these kind of uh, events, you know, there is the soft critique of, yes, we need better leadership and also being part of certain think groups where we talked about how we can shape and provide strategic projects. We can help shape the competitiveness of a city like Bucharest. Obviously, the main problem seems to be accountability 
and the ability for leaders to bring a project to fruition, a strong project that would outlast, you know, elections. So uh, I was wondering uh, also on uh, some of the other uh, guests here, because that's a, it's a really, really good point you mentioned. And also, any of the audience members, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on, uh, on leadership? Why is it so missing? What, what policies can be put in place that can help improve this crucial component that everyone seems to be mentioning, but everyone kind of feels it's kind of a thing that, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a bit hard to change. You know, that seems to be the overriding sentiment, right? It's that predicament there. May I comment on that? I, I want you to, to comment specifically. Yeah, I want to hear Claudio also, but uh, uh, just what is fresh in my mind because what Clara addresses here, I see directly in the practice of my work with different sizes of cities and especially these. Uh, we, we uh, in my consultancy network, the Future Navigators, uh, we, we talk about less cities and no cities. <laughs> there are also in Sweden. You talk about Central Europe, which has a bit of a different sort of historical context of doing your duty, don't stick out your head and say too much, you know, be more reserved and uh, silent sort of part of the political crowd or, or structure. Uh, Sweden is a bit more like America, people are more vocal and uh, dare to speak out and have an idea, of course, you see uh, already in school among children. Education systems is crucial here. I see also in Romania, it's more like what we had in Sweden like 100 years ago, that, that it's information more than knowledge, that, that people are required to read word by word and express uh, through their examiner word by word for the professor. That's information processing. And knowledge and wisdom is something different you cultivate, right? So, so it's more traditional educational factors here, and which is more connected to admin, administration, where administration has to work. But also in Sweden, you have, of course, many leaders within public sector and city governments who still see their role mainly as, no, we're not, we, our role is by the tax money to maintain and uh, develop the infrastructure dimension of the place, you know, and uh, the schools, healthcare, and the infrastructure, right? So that's the administration. And what's required now, the cities who are really successful in attracting talent and capital, they also add this dimension of urban development uh, by uh, transformation leadership. And uh, you mentioned policies. Well, uh, by policies, you can, of course, uh, reconfigure certain mechanisms in your uh, processes as a workplace or organizational structure to filter in uh, more likely the change agents and transformational and innovative people, right, in this administrative bureaucracy, because often they are filtered out in such workplaces. However, mm -hmm. it's also a little bit uh, by coincidence, sometimes you have in the local place a person who gets in the place who can play sort of the political persona, you need to be this uh, traditional one, but behind that also have this transformational leadership capacity and to can gather the right stakeholders and uh, be this networking bridging function between uh, the small medium-sized companies, the large corporations, the science and technology parks, the local university, academia, and uh, civil society, and then uh, uh, the uh, mayor office, right? And I think Cluj is it's a fantastic example of that. Again, you know, it's a, it's better than anything I've seen in Sweden, actually, here in Romania. So that's that's why I love you, Carl. Because I mean, you know, it's true. It depends very much on uh, on the, the kind of environment culturally which supports certain types of leaders or not. Meaning, how vocal is your your country? 
how much time have you had to develop that voice of democracy and, and you know, engagement in societal and public sector issues? And there's an awareness and education aspect there. But always, I think it comes down to uh, the individual responsibility. Leadership is about stepping up. And what is needed, Carl, like you mentioned, I believe, at least in my opinion, guys, I love your opinion, too. And I love I love the opinion of the audience members. But what is needed, basically, is for leaders to step up. And what I mean by step up, it means uh, to play in the current field of uh, variables, meaning to become a strong voice, to know how to create networks, to be a good listener. And there are pretty good examples out there like Cluj. Yes, it's a really, really great example. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly believe and subscribe to that too. What do you guys think in the audience members? Uh, you know, what can be done to promote better leaders? Do you think we need better leaders in public sector and private sector so that we can solve all these issues which are coming to light, of course, under COVID? So thank you very much for that, uh, uh, Carl and Clara, for bringing up that very, very important and contentious point. Um, Claudio, let's go to you. What, what, in what ways do you feel COVID has impacted business and innovation, Claudio? I will describe uh, my vision about uh, the influence of COVID on uh, business environment, specifically on Romanian business environment. But I will try to look at this uh, subject about leadership in uh, local public institution because uh, you we have now we had a, a scroller with this question: uh, Do we need a better leadership in um, public administration? Uh, yes, of course we need. What can we done? What can we do in the near future? First. Firstly, uh, in my opinion, uh, this year uh, um, we have an uh, opportunity window uh, for involvement. And secondly, uh, we can shadow uh, one um, expert, one leader in public uh, institutions, in my opinion. Uh, we can help uh, him or her uh, by staying uh, close uh, to, uh, to a specific uh, public institution, or uh, we can uh, create content about uh, good practices. I see a lot of content content uh, in, uh, in, Romanian, in Romanian media and uh, the tone is uh, so negative now. Uh, and this is, uh, this is what I, I'm creating now, um, a, a content based on solutions, helping also public, uh, public institutions because uh, we, all know, we all know good ideas, good projects and uh, uh, we have to share it to, to public um, specialists because they have uh, uh, they have a limited perspective. Uh, there are not so many in um, in a, in a city in city halls in a, in the, the most re relevant uh, public institutions, and they need our help from uh, NGOs and uh, business uh, environment. So regarding. Um, the, the situation and the evolution of uh, business environment. Uh, at the beginning of this crisis, um, I conducted a, a survey on uh, Romanian uh, tech uh, startups and scale-ups. And uh, why I did this survey is because I noticed that uh, other relevant um, uh, institutions from Sweden, Netherlands, uh, Denmark, Norway, and Germany did uh, did uh, this kind of uh, surveys okay uh, the the good practices uh, i have studied uh, uh, were launched by public institutions uh, so uh, startup sweden from sweden is a is a project uh, launched by the government techleap 
mm-hmm. is a, a project, a government uh, project focused on uh, tech uh, startups and scale-ups. And uh, I did this research in uh, in uh, in private in uh, Romanian business leaders where we have launched this uh, community scale out for uh, Romanian um, startups and uh, scale-ups. And after talking with more than 100 real tech uh, startups, we have noticed that um, for more than a half of them, the existence of the company is uh, uncertain due to COVID-19. For 20% of them, uh, they are certain that uh, we'll see, they will see negative effects in the, in the near future. Uh, but for 30 uh, percent, this context uh, created some uh, business opportunities, and uh, uh, this is uh, this was the good news uh, um, uh, for me. In what ways these kind these firms were negatively affected by the COVID crisis was a relevant topic uh, for me in this uh, research. Twenty-two percent. A concern is ability to keep employers on a payroll. 12% difficulties in paying taxes. 22% issues with the current planned funding. So around a quarter for, of the total tech environment in Romania was planning to raise new money, but the crisis stopped the, this uh, process of uh, fundraising. And I think this is a critical part uh, on the near future because uh, when we are talking about uh, innovation uh, ecosystems, we have to start with the capital, public money or pu- private money. And on the private money, I expect now a freeze of at least six months in terms of financing financing uh, uh, nice business uh, projects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is concerning for, uh, for Romanian business environment now is uh, the, the people. And uh, oh, I think now, okay, I generalize, but around half of the total firms uh, uh, cut uh, their HR costs uh, in this period. And uh, we will see these effects on the summer and maybe uh, on the next semester, uh, real effects in, in business. And of course, this uh, will influence uh, also the innovation uh, ecosystem. Thank you for that. That's also some very, um, very enlightening facts. And I think that's also what I've observed, which is there obviously is a significant part of most economies, traditional economies, which rely on fixed capital investments and, mm-hmm. you know, of course, uh, um, um, physical traffic, such as bars, hotels and all that, which have been severely affected, will be severely affected and will continue to be severely affected. However, there's a good chunk of the economy which actually are potentially thriving and see a lot of opportunities, as you said, as much as 30 percent, at least from the Romanian, the pulse of the Romanian startup community. Right. That's where your study was made. Yes, Romanian tech startup community. Specifically, Romanian tech startup uh, community. You know, I I, uh, I saw a famous um, quote by, I can't remember who, who said that, you know, um, in an economic crisis, it's not that money disappears, it's just that it changes hands. So I think if anything out of this particular uh, podcast, and for anyone who's watching, 
Of course, it does require uh, that you adapt. The human species has been very, very successful at adapting at a number of different, you know, global extinction and, and economic threats and all sorts of threats. Uh, however, yes, the message is clear. You do need to be pivoting to digital skills and, and transferring your business online as much as possible. And innovation Colleague, is going to be a big and important role. Please, uh, Clara. If if I may just add yes. one, one point, the assessment at the level of the Romanian economy is that the IT&T sector is the only one that will grow for sure <laughs> during this year. So we still wonder how affected uh, several sectors are from the service area. But we know for sure that the IT&T will, will grow along with the public sector. So these are the two sectors that will have a positive contribution to the GDP this year. Well, well, there you have it. And uh, I suppose now, and if you haven't already, by the way, we're perhaps doing this podcast a, a tad bit late because, you know, we have at least in Romania five more days left till the end of our quarantine. But, you know, if you maybe would have taken, uh, um, let's say, uh, understanding of this fact and where things are heading, then the quarantine would have been a very good time for you to upgrade some of your skills. At least I've been doing that personally. I'm actually going to start writing a book like Carl, which is all about helping people actually move their business online. And something that I call Renaissance 2.0, which is my belief that the current circumstances pretty much imitate very, very closely to the previous Renaissance, where, you know, after the Black Plague, now, of course, thankfully, this current uh, virus was nowhere near as bad as the, uh, the Black Plague, where half the population of Europe was wiped out, which created, of course, a huge gap uh, in terms of skill sets, but also flourishing or availability of capital because, you know, Farmers previously now became landowners and could purchase more and more land, but it also drove a lot of innovation because of, you know, the um, extinction or wipeout, perhaps, uh, effectively, of half of the population of Europe. That, that forced, you know, mechanization and automa automation, which then, of course, also led to Gutenberg's invention of the printing press, which also then you know, had an effect of being able to transfer knowledge to a, a mass number of people at a, at a rate never before available up until that time, which then led to further innovation. So I believe that the conditions could be parallel. Right now we have, you know, cheapest access ever to being able to develop a business, uh, avail uh, you know, access to any kind of knowledge, which, you know, 10 years ago would have been very, very difficult. You would have had to stay under a mentor and being very lucky to be in the circles of a mentor to be able to discover a lot of the information available right now. So it's a, it's probably one of the best times in histories right now. And I do foresee that we will see a period of more prosperity, but also uh, I'm hoping to see, and this is why I like it to the Renaissance, more art and more emphasis on promoting, you know, higher values with regards to how we treat our planet, how we treat each other. And of course, you know, uh, how we, or the philosophy of how we coexist with each other, which is perhaps one of the reasons why we came to this place in the first place, right? Because of, you know, mass consumerism, cutting out of, you know, mass uh, uh, um, uh, places uh, uh, or, or um, uh, rainforests, which then of course led to the um, erosion of these barriers between, uh, you know, uh, exotic animals and microorganisms, which of course then led to, or so they say, there's a number of different theories, but COVID. So uh, that's my theory. It's a little crazy. That's what my book is about. So I hope you do, uh, you know, if you have an interest in it, let me know. And we have here from one of our viewers, I'm just going to read one of the comments. So in regards to the question we asked earlier about what kind of policies could we put in place so that we can support better leadership? 
And here, Ana Maria Enake says, how can leaders be more open-minded with regard to community decisions and inclusion of most age groups? After all, the youth can be badly disregarded in the decision-making and cities should be designed for both present and future needs. There can still be some incompatibility between age groups when discussing such matters. Absolutely, Anna, and I think we're going to be discussing that. I think, Carl, uh, you might want to address that slightly now, or do you want to save it for our next segment where we're going to be talking specifically about the, um, uh, the effect on different age groups? Uh, yes, I, I mean, I can wait until we talk about different age groups then, yeah. Okay, okay. And then also we had Bogdan Alexandru, who says leadership is a crucial is crucial in sustainable development. The administration positions in cities and countries should not be determined by the political affiliation with the skills and capacities that the potential candidate can provide for that specific role. So definitely uh, politics should stay away from the administration positions. I could not agree with you more in most cases, of course, right? There are certain, of course, uh, matters where, well, I, I suppose that's not what you mean. Uh, you know, I was going to say there are certain matters which, of course, are better uh, at least organized uh, by the public sector, such as, you know, medical and healthcare. However, you're, you're proposing that, of course, people should not be put in positions where they're responsible for the allocation of capital and further decisions around those kind of uh, infrastructure that's required. So thank you very much for your comments, guys. And uh, let's move on to our next question. So, uh, you know, we've talked about so far the impact of, uh, of COVID on business and innovation. Uh, Carl, you mentioned that, uh, you know, it's disruptive, obviously, the ways in which we consider how we work and the kind of systems and ecosystems around how, uh, you know, businesses can grow through access of capital, access of people, right? And how innovation tends to happen also, or a part of innovation happens when you're face to face, and now that's gone, but there are means to in, uh, to adapt to that, such as you know the digital nomad or at least remote working lifestyle. Uh, Clara, you mentioned that you know there is a trend now to move away from the um, uh, the city state, where entire economies are very dependent, uh, pretty much on the GDP of certain primary capitals or big big cities, in essence. And how now because of uh, COVID that becomes more complicated because of the current environment and there's going to be a move towards secondary cities uh, and um, and where you know the economy is going to become more local more connected and uh, we talked also with Claudio how in at least the Romanian uh, startup tech scene although there is concern about whether business will be viable during this period and post this period overall there is a big uh, chunk of uh, entrepreneurs in the tech sphere that are reporting opportunities and are planning for growth. And as Clara mentioned, in the IT, IT and C sector, at least in Romania, uh, they're predicting basically growth in the Romanian economy. So now that we know that, I'd like to ask, you know, so now we know these basically impacts on business. What are the, the future trends that um, you know that are coming out of this, and I'd like to speak about speak about it in more detail. We've touched upon a little bit of those so far, but what are the future trends that you see being shaped as a result of COVID when it comes to business and innovation? How perhaps that inf impacts our cities as well? Um, Clara, do you mind if we start with you for this question? No, I'm I'm fine. I already wanted to follow up on a couple of ideas. I, I saw you. Um, <laughs> first off, I I love your book idea about Renaissance 2.0, and I think um, a lot of people have been playing around with the idea that we're coming back to the age of um, you know city states. 
Um, mm. And not in the sense of the public sector that you just mentioned, but in the sense of concentration, you know, the kind of multiplication effects uh, in, um, in and around the metropolitan areas. Um, and I think that but you know that's one trend I mentioned earlier. That's one trend that's gonna um, that's gonna go ahead uh, in terms of the multiplication effects at local level. Um, and this, I think, is is subscribed to what we tend to to call the new economic model. Um, and you know, you see that in supply chains also. I think we're gonna move away from consumerism as you just mentioned, um, into a paradigm that I would call, you know, know your supplier. Uh, and uh, know your supplier is also from the point of view of companies that will have to manage their, the risk of large supply chains better. So they will move to regional, better controlled uh, supply chains, but also from the point of view of individuals. You, and again, I think this is something we've been seeing for a while now, you know, buying groceries from, um, from local producers or trying to find um, ethical, um, you know, manufacturing uh, sources. These are the kinds of things and, and, you know, buying coffee from, from a boutique coffee shop instead of a chain um, coffee place. So I think these are the trends that will continue to, to grow. And this will change the paradigm, the economic paradigm. We're going to move away from higher value added. Um, in the sense of, you know, buying cheap and selling, uh, selling for profit. Um, we're going to move into a paradigm that's all about velocity. So how fast we circulate the, um, the money, the, the value and how fast velocity, right? Velocity of money exchange and how fast we circulate the, the wealth will bring multiplication effects and will ensure local jobs. So this is one one of the trends I see consolidating for the the medium term. Um, the other one I mentioned already is the the green economy, and especially in Europe, this is going to be something that we have to to pay attention to. Um, the whole of the European Union tries to base its uh, its economic model on on the green deal. Um, so I, I, at city level, I. I think we're going to see an emphasis on how cities can successfully support startups and wider innovation ecosystems um, to provide solutions for, um, you know, carbon emissions and, and uh, moving towards the green economy. And, and finally, I, I have to, to admit, I'm not a tech expert. I'm sure, you know, Claudio and, and you are much better suited to, to discuss this. But my feeling as, a, as an economist is that um, ITNC uh, departments within um, other companies of other profiles, so not just the ITNC sector, but ITNC departments within different um, economic sectors will become much um, more important. They will become part of the core uh, strategy of development. So even if you're selling, you know, like um, groceries online or, or uh Greek oil, olive oil, you're going to have to have this very um, um, sophisticated component of online selling, um, you know, incorporating new technologies. And this is, uh, again, a shift that's been going on for a while now, but we're going to see more of it. Um, and, you know, human capital. 
at the end of the day, it will all be about human capital. It was about human capital and it will continue to be about human capital. And those cities that, you know, generally university hubs, but not just universities as teaching places, universities as learning ecosystems, innovations, you know, public-private uh, partnerships. Um, and these will be places that will attract capital and will attract business moving along. Yeah, I May I comment uh, on that too? Uh, I was expecting uh, a comment, please. <laughs> no, I mean, we're, we use this uh, new terminology, innovation ecosystems. Ecosystem, it has to do with nature, right? And uh, the way nature <laughs> evolves is by self-organization. I mean, that's why we use the term ecosystem. It has uh, both top-down and bottom-up feedback loops and uh, other mechanisms to, to sort of uh, evolve. And... Uh, it's more by decentralized and distributed uh, networks. Uh, and and uh, what humans have built is very centralized uh, hierarchical networks, which becomes very vulnerable because if there is an error in the top node, it escalates down to all of the sub nodes and stuff like that. And so uh, that's the reason we in invented the internet, right? To, to make it more resilient. Because, I mean, decentralized and distributed systems are resilient. And what you talk about here is that these uh, large industrial uh, uh, formations of uh, centralized uh, systems for supply chain and logistics from different uh, international exports, imports, and countries, and so on. And we have these uh, cycles reoccurring uh, on a certain timescale pandemics or natural catastrophes or climate changes or uh, economic impacts, whether it's recessions or depressions in certain cycles, because, uh, I mean, economy is also part of nature somehow, and it follows the curves like all natural systems, you know, sort of oscillations and larger movements and smaller oscillations within those trends, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you create a resilient society? Well, that is, uh, as you say, to, to move away from these heavily centralized, uh, very vulnerable systems uh, solutions we have created and, and uh, more start to, to uh, work with emergent planning, emergent strategies and decentralized uh, capabilities. So one part of the system is disrupted, but then it's sort of dis displacements effect, as you say, and then you have productivity effects when capital and people move around, right? And there, uh, the, the educational systems ha have to support reskilling and upskilling uh, in this transformation of technology and work, forms of work, right? And uh, I mean, the future is uh, the defining moment this century is, of course, when it comes to the world of work and society is uh, the artificial intelligence, general artificial intelligence, but that's decades ahead from now. Right now we are in the stage of narrow artificial intelligence. And, uh, but we see it already now as an effect of platform economics, especially now during COVID with <laughs> needs for remote working so di directly now there will be a trend on uh, equipment to establish your home office physically, to have a home office. That's a new sort of uh, business uh, <laughs> trend, right? And also uh, to develop or use uh, practical online tools for, to facilitate remote working and collaboration. That, that, that's, uh, that's going to be definitely a trend from the insights and impacts of this COVID. Yeah. Very well put, Carl. I mean, uh, I wanted to actually... Um drive the discussion towards you. And I think you mentioned a couple of points there also by Anselin Clara. Clara, by the way, thank you very much. Very, very insightful points. And uh, by the way, I'd love to have 
I'd love to interview on my book uh, coming up, okay? Because you just gave me some really, really great ideas as well. Also, you know, looking at it from the, the, the economic uh, perspective or the, the, the perspective of the economics involved. So thank you very much for that. So, Carl, let's, uh, let's move to you. Uh, how do you, I mean, you already mentioned that, you know, there's going to be a trend towards, you said upskilling, right? Which is basically yeah. helping people develop new skills to be able to participate in this upcoming new uh, economy. And uh, you also mm -hmm. mentioned that there's going to be a trend towards um, supporting more remote work. What other trends do you see um, um, taking prominence and shape as a result of COVID going forward? It, it depends on uh, the, the, the societal stage I was talking about, because uh, every now and then there is a leap, and we call it a transformational uh, leap. It's, uh, I mean, suddenly something happens, or the society is disrupted or affected in some way that it has to get up on the feet, and there might be a new technological paradigm or a new political paradigm or some kind of natural external forces uh, hitting the economy, the society in a certain way. And uh, we have several impacts right now. We used to talk all the time about digital transformation and now we can add the pandemic uh, <laughs> transformation here. So we have several factors affecting our society at the same time. And uh, that requires, uh, I mean, because after a while, as uh, uh, a system established, uh, then you will get the best practice <laughs> and a manual. On page 42, you can find the solution to a certain problem. It's known, and then it can run, right? And, uh, but when it's a transformational era, then it can only be emergent practice. That's like the innovation phase before you have the resources to start to administrate and maintain best practice, right? And, uh, mm -hmm. and reach that stage. So we are in a transformational area where the educational system, the problem is for them, it's, they are lagging 20 to 30 years behind because it takes such a time for on a national level to, to regulate, uh, define the policies uh, for educational systems uh, and uh, the ways to go about uh, pedagogical methods and models and so on. So that, that operates in best practice because it's also tax, ta tax money, so you don't want to uh, play too much risky experimental things within the educational systems. Uh, the problem is that what you need right now is to give people the tools uh, to build on their individual unique capacity uh, how to create work, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And the schools are very much built in an era for mass production where you learn a set of skills to apply the job. Uh, the labor society, right? And I think right now uh, we need to, to, to have much more tools to, to make it possible for people to, um, uh, to, to learn how to make themselves go to people and community building and to create their own kind of work life and work role in various ways by combining different things in this new digital society. and. Uh, also the need for a, a more decentralized system, right? So, uh, so the educational systems, that's where we talk about, we have to have new approaches to uh, upskilling and reskilling. And it's not only about a certain age, we're talking about generations there, it's about lifelong learning. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, they, very, very well put. And I love how, um, you know, you kind of bring to light the, um, the timeframes almost in terms of what needs to happen for educational models to, to, to transform and, and how right now, in essence, we have a big catalyst, but 
Will that transform into you know uh, the stage where it becomes best practice and uh, and where basically the new model becomes the dominant model, right? Um, and in terms of now the age groups and differences, and I, you, you know, we had also a question earlier from one of our audience members who said that, you know, uh, how does this impact different age groups? And uh, I think in our previous or precursor discussion to this, you mentioned that some of the older age groups might be more impacted, while the commentator was more concerned about the impact on younger generations and why they're not heard. And I think there's, a, there's an interesting opportunity to bridge the two, isn't there, Carl? Well, uh, when we talk about generational research and studies, we talk about these different cohorts where we define uh, different uh, generations. We, we use the terminologies of the silent generation, the baby boomers, uh, Generation X, uh, the pre and post millennials, Generation Y, and Generation Z, born after 2000. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, why we talk about these cohorts, of course, it's qualitative studies. It's, it's not an exact science, uh, but anyway, you still observe statistics and categories and how it has gradually evolved to one planet with a global communication system. So the big shift is that Generation Y and even more Generation C is the first global shared culture, globally shared culture, uh, which are sharing news items and cultural uh, trends and so on on a global scale. And uh, each generation is affected by some major uh, political or um, uh, you know international events and uh, right now it's uh, of course about the sustainable societies certain international conflicts and uh, political uh, situations and uh, awareness and then it's also very much the rise of uh, uh, this innovation-driven economy, which uh, it's more and more about uh, self-made kind of entrepreneurship, digital nomadism, and uh, the digital transformation also. So, um, I mean, that, that's where uh, we have gaps. We talk about uh, the gap between younger and older generation, We're also digital gap between those who are digital natives and, and uh, the urban rural uh, yeah, the, the cities uh, and where there is not that kind of concentration of business and people uh, interacting with each other, the rural areas. And uh, so when it comes to the age groups, of course, uh, the older generations have uh, accumulated <laughs> an enormous uh, wealth uh, um, uh, building up during the last century, right, which they right now live off. And uh, then you have new entrants in the young, young generations into the world of work. And, uh, and um, but they ha have also, well, everything they do not learn in school, because what's in the front line of innovation is not what you learn in school. So it's interesting to observe what are all these uh, moments of learnings for young people when they are not in school, you know, when they are actually on the internet or gaming or uh, in their communities and stuff like that. That's where you can see how will the future of economy and uh, work market be shaped. You can see that already now, what they are doing when they are not in school. So, uh, so and that's, uh, I find that very interesting to study. Um, if, I, if I can add just to, to my Two cents on the issue um, in terms of, uh, of this age problem because I think we are are facing challenges on all age groups um, and social exclusion will be one of the biggest challenges moving ahead in the post-COVID world um, because on one one hand you have ageism 
coming up around the corner in the business sector. Uh, very few people over 40 uh, will be attractive in the new, uh, newly shaped specialization of the business sector. So you're definitely going to be uh, faced with ageism. Um, and in Romania, you know, this is not uh, so palpable at the moment because of what our viewer mentioned. You have this more rigid, publicly driven safe jobs type of environment, um, an environment that tends to discriminate against younger generations, right? Mm -hmm. But I think things will, will convert. Sorry, Carl, you, you wanted to say something? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have that pretty much in Sweden and other places too, that, that the people who are born in the 40s and 50s, they are in an age where they are uh, in the managerial positions or the leadership positions in government, politics, universities, and so on. And they were born before the digital transformation, right? And then you have the younger generation who are sort of bottom-up forming anyway the, the future of economy and work, right? So it's a mismatch here, uh, uh, how these generations can sort of find each other uh, in what's relevant to, to collaborate around. And they need to do it, you know. We need all age groups. Actually, the, the thing with uh, how you can manage complexity not simple systems, not complicated systems. It's the next level, the complex systems, which everything about society is about complex systems, right? It's so many agents. And uh, to find the right answers, you have to uh, extract that from the complex system itself. So you have to identify the stakeholders making up this system. There is no single person holding that answer. That's a simple system. Uh, but in a complex system, it's not a single agent holding the answer, like authoritarian system or, or something, right? Uh, so, so we have to bridge these gaps. And uh, I know also I work for the European Commission. It's a, it's a uh, big uh, sort of uh, um, efforts put into bridge digital, uh, non-digital, urban, rural, younger, older, uh, weaker parts of Europe, stronger parts of Europe to, to bridge and balance the different stakeholders in Europe as a complex system. Is, is that done merely on an intellectual, conceptual level, or is there real impetus to actually decentralize? Resources and uh, methodologies uh, to, to do this. Yeah. Allocational right, right. resources and developmental methodologies. Yeah, uh, Clara, you wanted to say something there. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight one more age group, and that's our children. Um, and, you know, we're going to be facing huge divides uh, in what concerns them because the public educational system is not always functioning in this new digital environment. And the kids, our kids, that benefit from, you know, the know-how that we can provide at home, uh, you know, managing their Zoom uh, online training, ensuring that they have access to, to digital instruments and so on and so forth, they will um, develop with a higher de developmental divide than children from less fortunate uh, environment. So I think it will be very much needed, what Carl just mentioned, to have these um, kind of summing up public policies that can really uh, decrease this uh, inequality gap that will, will form uh, with their generation, right? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, Ana Maria, I hope you enjoyed that little expose. I think we really covered your question there. If you have any further questions, we'd love to hear from them. And uh, thank you both, actually. That was a really, really uh, enlightening uh, discussion on that topic, and it's a very, very important topic. And uh, I think all, at least my take on it is that uh, COVID certainly has exposed a lot of these gaps, and, so, and I'm hoping COVID will be the catalyst so that these gaps can start to bridge, right? From, uh, from all the topics and, uh, and angles that we've mentioned so far. So, Claudio, I'd like to, uh, to get on to you. And in what ways do you think, you know, uh, what trends are you kind of looking at in terms of being shaped primarily as a result of COVID going forward? I agree with these two trends exposed by Carla before. Uh, firstly, uh, go global is the new uh, go global. And secondly, um, uh, the bigger, the bigger, the big companies from Romania will create, not will develop not only uh, their uh, ICNT um, um, departments, but also innovation hubs uh, in the near future. But um, I want to be more specifically uh, uh, at uh, your question, Colin, and uh, I will uh, analyze also the source of the money for this kind of trends in Romania, as I said at the beginning, and uh, we can uh, have a, uh, a two-side approach. Firstly, we can look at the public money, but there, based on my experience in, uh, in the government, it is very hard to create now uh, a public policy and a program uh, that uh, will have effects in uh, two or three months. In my opinion, a government can create uh, public policies and good programs, but uh, with um, effects for at least one year in the future. So let's look, uh, um, dear speakers and uh, guests, at uh, the private uh, fundraising now. And uh, now I'm doing uh, another research about the Romanian uh, startups and scale-ups, tech startups and scale-ups that raised capital during pandemic times, during these two, uh, two months of uh, lockdown. And uh, here I noticed uh, three or four uh, trends, three or four verticals that could grow in the near future. Because uh, let's be honest, uh, to, in order to understand the trends and the uh, uh, future, we have uh, to see the source of the capital. So I'm now I'm looking uh, to business angels and venture capital, who are who are still active in the in Romania and they are investing, and they did uh, an investment in Sanopas, a Romanian startups that aggregate independent medical service providers to sell preventive medical packages. So healthcare, four hundred thousand euro investment. Second, Telios, another healthcare uh, startup. For the uh, GAMS uh, uh, that provides pa- patients around the world with options to access dental services and packages from different com- countries. So also health tech and uh, uh, one inv- two investment uh, funds, two venture capital funds uh, from Romania invest, invested um, 300,000 in humans, a technology startup based on AI. So this could uh, become another uh, uh, another good uh, vertical for uh, the near future in Romania. Uh, uh, AI and uh, by the help of uh, with uh, of uh, 
AI uh, uh, founders can create uh, good uh, startups in the near future. Mission critical, RPA, robotics, and uh, only one deal in e-learning and ed tech, educational tech, code of talent. So these were uh, the, 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 the only six uh, investments uh, done by venture capital and business angels in Romania. So based on this short uh, study, I can say that we can focus now in the near future on the next uh, segments. Health tech, AI, RPA, robotics, and we know better why we're looking at the success of UiPF. In my opinion, UiPF will, uh, will grow in the near future uh, because uh, also the public administration will try to use uh, robotic process um, uh, technology uh, in the near future. And uh, thirdly, of course, uh, digital learning and ed tech. And these verticals could uh, become also a priority for a public institution, in my opinion, when they will create new public policies in order to foster innovation in, in Romania. Let's look at the nowadays reality to create uh, future uh, uh, public policies and programs focused on innovation. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head, and I think also you you know it's it's no surprise actually none of these or all of these uh, sectors which received investment during COVID in Romania, nevertheless, uh, were actually uh, trends coming from way before COVID. I mean, not way before, but yeah, certainly in the last five years have been a major yeah. focus. I host a series of, uh, of talks um, called Dev Talks. Uh, I'm invited occasionally to be one of their hosts there and specifically around the innovations uh, stage. And these are definitely the categories we mostly talk about. Uh, and uh, I think Romania has a very good standing. Romania being, of course, one of, uh, you know, a, a very, very strong region with um, um, big access and growth of engineers and engineering talent. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I ended up staying here. I initially came for real estate, fun fact, like one of those crazy foreigners <laughs> trying to make a quick buck. But then eventually ended up staying for love and, uh, and very luckily ended up in the tech scene. So, yes, I've been very blessed to have all the right uh, <laughs> pathways and routes. Um, but yeah, that was a really, really interesting uh, study, um, um, Claudio. And thank you very, very much for bringing that to uh, to the to the service. Do you guys have anything to comment on that? Any of our guests um, have any questions around any of these sectors? Right? Are you currently aware of these sectors? Do you have access to be able to study more about these sectors? Are you interested in these sectors? These are definitely sectors. I'll tell you at least, you know, from uh, from you know the um, uh, the technology. Um, um, uh, point of view, which are very, very uh, central right now and going forward and were central previously. So these are trends that are probably going to stay and actually grow a lot, lot more. Um, so any questions maybe, around that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not part of Romanian startup investments, but I, I would like to see fintech there as well, because I mean, right. the way the monetary system, uh, the banks systems and the, uh, the, the financial technology and how that has been decentralized by for example, robotics and trading platforms and what you can elaborate on uh, as a smaller sort of startup and uh, doing smart new things and the cryptocurrency involvement and so on. 
Yeah, certainly, certainly, and uh, and it's a, it's a it's a very fundamental um, and important aspect for driving further uh, innovation and also you know helping bring about this decentralized economy and world that you talked of, Carl. Right? Yeah. It's very very important that we have uh, innovation in fintech as well. Uh, Clara, please. Yeah, I would just like to mention that I'm uh, again. I would like to congratulate Claudia. I'm very happy this type of study exists at this moment because, as uh, some of you might remember, um, a few years ago when we were negotiating the operational programs with the European Commission, there were a lot of um, sources of funding available for uh, research and development and uh, new, uh, you know, startups, uh, entrepreneurship, and very little was known about the mapping of the potential hub or potential drivers of the Romanian economy. So you ended up having a poorer um, funding uh, association for certain sectors because you didn't have this type of mapping that that cloud you can provide now. What I wanted to add is one more thing. The Romanian economy, much like many other economies from Central and Eastern Europe, but especially the Romanian economy, is trying to catch up with Western Europe, you know, in this kind of convergence process. And one of the major limitations of this convergence process has been its inability to move to higher value-added chains of production. So overall, the Romanian economy was driven by manufacturing, um, you know, uh, components industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, outsourcing. So the development of the ITNC sector, but not in the sense of outsourcing, in the sense of higher value-added production, that cloud you just mentioned, I think will be a very important element of leapfrogging towards, um, you know, a, a new relative positioning towards the Western uh, member states. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think also it's a, it's a good opportunity uh, specifically right now for that to happen. As Carl mentioned, disruption tends to be a very significant opportunity for players and money to shift around, right? Uh, great, guys, let's move on to our, our final question. Before I do that, I'd just like to read out a couple of comments so, and questions and we'll see how we answer them. So here we have from Grazian, our fearless leader at Urban Talks and Urbanize Hub. Love the futurist, McFall. <laughs> Hello to everyone and congrats for the discussion. What will be the trends of new business after COVID? We covered that. Which type of business will be more successful? We covered that. So just to reiterate, but uh, uh, healthcare or med tech, ed education tech, um, robotics, artificial intelligence, and very, very rightly said by Carl, FinTech, financial technology. We also uh, talked about how, and Clara very, very rightly mentioned that, uh, you know, you know, understanding this is really important so that we can understand about the potential opportunity and positioning, no matter which country you're in, right? And Romania, we're talking about from the Romanian perspective and, and the report that Claudio provided. By the way, Claudio, when can we have that report? Is it visible? Is it public? I'm sure lots of people viewing this maybe would like to have a quick look at that. I mean, um, when, when would that be ready, let's say, in a format that you could possibly share if you wanted to share it? <laughs> of course, in, in five days, I assume. Five days. Okay, well, look, uh, I'll tell you what, anyone watching, sign up to our newsletter, and uh, when it's done, we'll, we'll drop you a link uh, over to Cloudview's uh, site and where you can also find this report. I'm definitely going to sign up. Well, I am signed up, but I'm definitely going to be looking to see that report. And uh, just to get back to uh, Grazian's question, so from a European macro perspective, do you expect that money for climate change, the Green Deal, will shift towards health and safety of European citizens? I'm very interested to hear about uh, what you guys think about this. Let's just spend a, a quick a minute talking about this. Um, Clara, would you like to uh, take a stab at that or... 
Sure. I think uh, one side of the European Union is trying to mix and match the um, you know EU recovery fund with the Green Deal um, resources. We, we didn't really have a clear idea of where will the money for the Green Deal come from. So now we have an even poorer idea <laughs> of where it will come from if we are to, to tackle the, the EU recovery fund at the same time. So it was Germany that put forward this idea of having a green, uh, you know, green deal and a white deal, white deal signifying the whole uh, post-pandemic effort. But personally, looking at the recent statements of the EU leaders, um, you know, the, the pres- president of the, the European uh, Parliament for European Commission and the Council, I think we are still looking at a very strong commitment to the green deal itself. So. Um, I, I personally, I don't think they will shift to too much funding towards health and safety. They will try to raise new funding for health and safety, as we saw the discussion for a temporary increase in the member state contribution to the EU budget. Now, one thing we must all understand is that either the Green Deal or um, some of the new investment uh, instruments will all be loan-based predominantly or equity-based predominantly. So we are definitely moving away from that logic of grants, uh, money uh, given as subsidies, um, and we're, we're really moving towards a market-based dynamics of the type of the Juncker plan. And that's why studies in market capitalization, like the one Claudio did, are so important because even with European funding, even with public funding, we're still going to have to obey market uh, let's say demand and supply type of of, um, of equilibrium and forces. Do you, Carl, do you have anything if you want to answer or add? I, I mean, if we speak about the EU as an administrative entity and its different functions and uh, uh, parts of the implementation of the, from the EU Parliament with the European Commission and the European Councils and all these different uh, major players. Uh, working as the EU. Uh, I mean, uh, so they collect resources from society through taxes uh, to redistribute and reallocate resources to balance the stronger and weaker parts of the economy and the society in what we define as Europe, as an administrative entity. And uh, the Green Deal is, uh, I mean, that's what is uh, uh, Lagarde's uh, primary uh, sort of mission, uh, the Green Deal, and how to to, to, to work to establish this um, uh, social, ecological, and uh, economically sustainable uh, Europe. And uh, I see here in Romania, for example, if we talk about <laughs> logistics for waste management and stuff like that, it's, it's far behind Sweden. We cycle 98% of our garbage and stuff. Is if I go out here, it's, <laughs> it's not really on the same level, right? So there are parts of Europe which definitely needs to develop both from public sector and also from, from the business sector. And here we talk about also what you're into, Claudio, uh, the, the venture capital. I mean, the large uh, new trend in the innovation ecosystems are these private initiatives for impact investors uh, who are very strong individuals with capital, uh, impact investments, and uh, social and societal entrepreneurs who develop new business models and new types of technology for a sustainable society. And uh, 
uh, here, this is what I would like to see uh, really much for Romania, for example, catching up on impact investments and uh, creating these arena for uh, meetings between impact investors and uh, social and societal entrepreneurs. That Romania could actually in Central Europe take a lead on that. Yeah. It's not really done here yet. We have it more in San Francisco, California. Or, uh, well, fun fact. Fun fact on that, because as I mentioned, I'm, I'm researching for, for my book and I'm studying the Renaissance period. You know, um, you're, you're all probably aware of the Medici family as being probably, at least the public perception is that it was one of the wealthiest families during the Renaissance period. But actually, if you look at their wealth comparatively till today, they must have been, in terms of, you know, Forbes rich list, they were around position 1,000, right? So they're the 1,000 richest person on the planet today. But the amount of money donated by the Medici family for societal, philosophical, architectural, and all these things which really shaped the Renaissance is the equivalent of $500 million, which, you know, uh, anecdotally is probably what Abramovich spent on his, um, his super yacht and what, you know, a lot of billionaires spend on their super yachts. But actually that amount of money, which, which represented about a third of their wealth, uh, actually supported the arts and all these, you know, social investments for a period of 30 years and, of course, was a major contributor. Now, what's also very interesting, Carl, like you mentioned, I, I know I, I find this fascinating. And if any billionaire is listening right now, this is for you guys. Right. But, uh, you know, it was the idea that this movement was actually very much premeditated with a lot of intention. So the Medici's of the world and a bunch of other you know, uh, people who had amassed some wealth at the time, they were very intentional. They, they lived, for example, in quarters with uh, philosophers, artists, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, inventors. You know, da, uh, da Vinci, of course, was, uh, you know, living, I think, at the Medici residence for a while. And the Medicis were the ones dictating, listen, we need some kind of an art to promote this idea. We need some kind of an invention around here. We need some architecture to expound some new and healthier ways of living. So any billionaires listening, uh, listen to Carl, listen to Clara, listen to Claudio, and now's your time to you know really step up your social impact game. <laughs> I, I, I would like to add that I had a pretty sort of energized discussion on Messenger yesterday with a with my brother, actually, my beloved brother in Gothenburg. He's five years older than me, and uh, I come from this artist home, uh, the Bohemian family, I'm like the black sheep who went into business, innovation, entrepreneurship. At the same time, <laughs> artists are self-employed entrepreneurs. I try to, to convince them uh, that you are this. Uh, this is where I learned everything, to be this kind of creative maverick a little bit, who doesn't really fit into traditional workplace uh, formal structures and behaviors. Uh, but anyway, so we had this discussion because uh, I found this video clip. I think it was through Misha Vadan in, in Cluj. She posted it on Facebook. And it, it's about it's a news item from Fox News, who, together with Donald Trump, is pretty irritated with Bill Gates being now the largest uh, individual contributor to World Health Organization after Donald Trump sort of also withdraw the U.S. funding in the middle of the corona pandemic, right? And uh, the, the sort of... Uh, these impact investors are actually being attacked from two sides at the same time, both the conservative uh, side and from the more left-wing socialist side and uh, the NGOs and the organizations there who have established their institutions and interest groups. And then you have the governments, whether that's left or right uh, for the moment in certain countries, but the established sort of 
uh, institutions to deal with the uh, global, uh, the, the sustainable development goals uh, by United Nations and these things. And then you have these new super rich investors who can actually act by their own mandate and take very much faster decisions to, to help the world without having to ask anyone. And since they are economically independent, they can be honest with their own values at the same time. You cannot be that if you sit in a boardroom with seven different political parties, you have to be diplomatic and process things bit by bit. And governments are tied up since decades and hundreds of years in political alliances, defense agreements, um, trade agreements and stuff. You know, they are pretty stuck in uh, to fast enough create these uh, required solutions to help the world. So I think we should be pretty lucky that we have some super rich individual uh, sort of uh, agents in the systems who can take action directly on this and together with a civil society and good initiatives um, in the cities and regions. At the same time, I think also, uh, you know, everyone with the access to some capital uh, and the skills to transform that capital, but also specifically wherever, you know, it's interacting with the public at large in whatever capacity, whether you're putting out ads or you're putting out products, I think right now is a good moment to also you know, uh, take that responsibility a little bit on hand. There's a lot of issues going on. It can't be solved by one billionaire, two billionaires. Not even our countries and our governments can solve it. So I think everyone has to be a little bit more conscientious in their individual practices. And I think also, like you rightly said, Carl, it's very much about, you know, taking a little inspiration from the artists and aligning, let's say, your businesses with your true values and seeing how that can actually produce some added value in the world and see what it can do in terms of impacting your local community. And I think, you know, that's also what, what we're about here at, um, what, at Urban Talks, certainly what I'm about. So I get to, I will say it every chance I get, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Business with purpose, money with meaning. Yeah, money meaning. That's actually the major thesis of my book. That's that's the the paradigm shift I'm talking about. But you know, expounding it from that that analogy. So yeah, if you guys want to contribute to the book, please. You know, this is a great discussion. <laughs> I will put you in contact with Kevin Jones. I will put you in contact with Kevin Jones, the founder of Social Cap Markets in uh, San Francisco, the yeah. big arena for investors. So, so that that's about money and meaning. That that would be great. Uh, and Clara, please, I want I know you yeah, want to say something. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a shift towards meaningful action in society by by big business, not just uh, rich individuals. I think the yeah. shift was very very uh, well punctured, let's say, in August 2019, last year, when we had the business roundtable uh, statement by the largest companies in the United States. Um, uh, stating publicly for the first time that their uh, responsibility is towards all stakeholders, not just their shareholders. And that was, um, you know, apparently it's just words, but it was the first time everybody was on the same page agreeing that they have a true responsibility towards society. And it was a huge shift in economic thinking because economic thinking for the past decades, uh, since, you know, Milton Friedman has been all about the bottom line. Um, and, and I, I, I fully subscribe to, to what both of you said earlier. But I do think it was kind of cooking <laughs> oh, of for, for we're, some we're, time now. And now yeah, is yeah. the moment to step up and really see their engagement towards society. Because, it's again, it's not just individuals. You have to have the full spectrum of the private sector engaged to have meaningful. 
you know, develop a new social contract, essentially. We're no longer talking about a bilateral social contract between individuals um, and companies on one side and the state on the other side. We're actually talking about a trilateral engagement of citizens, businesses, and the state together. So um, this is something, this is the challenge, our, our philosophical and practical challenge of the, of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, you know, we do, it's not that we're talking about anything new, but it's certainly at least how I view my responsibility is to, to try and expound that message as much as possible. And more hardly is to live by that message. Not so easy either. And I think that's where the challenge is for big business. And I think also that's, I think, where you, you know, you will see, let's say, a lot of backwards and forwards and not a straight line change. And by the way, the Renaissance, people think that it happened, you know, 1513 when Da Vinci, I don't know, um, um, you know, drew the Mona Lisa, but it wasn't that. It was like a huge 200 period where there was a lot of backwards and forwards. There were wars as well. You know, it wasn't a straight line change. There was a big process that happened. Only, you know, several years later in the 1913, I think it was, uh, someone named and coined the term the Renaissance period, right? So that's why, at least I think, and you're very right, Clara, it's not that, you know, it's a new trend. It's that we've been heading in this trend. But what I'm hoping to do, and I think also um, is perhaps maybe, I'm hoping that it's, uh, it's the right approach, but is to highlight the positive aspects of what's going on. I think one of the major problems in general with uh, society, politics, and all that, is that there's, there is an extreme focus on the, the negative and the criticism of what's happening. And it's not a very healthy way of basically looking at how we can move forward. And you can see how divided in general communities are, politicians are. It's a very, very divided world. So I'm hoping to, to create a little bit more of, uh, and I think everyone should be looking to create. And that's why I talk about the importance of artists, but we, we really need to aspire and be inspired by a positive vision moving forward. Otherwise, we're just focusing on where we're going, which is basically, you know, <laughs> down the drain. So <laughs> uh, anyways, let's get on to our next question but thank you that was a really nice breakout session a little brainstorm we had there unscripted unplanned guys that's what you came for here at urban talks and certainly when i'm talking <laughs> all right so uh let's uh one more question which we answered that i'll leave this last question for later yuroland banat thank you our partners at yuroland banat will will ask and refer to your question uh in a second so last question is and i think we we kind of unintentionally covered it a little bit but maybe this is our chance to and your chance, um, our guests to to talk about it a bit more of a coherent way, but um, than I've done so far. But um, the last question is, you know, what's the what's the message and what's the uh, advice, so to speak, you would give to people, you know, both businesses, employees of businesses, um, you know, um, the public sector as well, in terms of moving forward and what can we do moving forward in the context of business and innovation? You know, what can we learn and, and, and what areas can we focus on and how can we overcome this together? So um, I'll switch up the order a little bit. Claudio, would you mind going first? Yes, I'll be very short. And um, two advices uh, I have in mind uh, are, firstly, uh, create the real projects with counterparts from research institutes or uh, academia if you are a business people or and if you are uh, and if you work in a, um, a university go to business environment and create a, a special projects with business people uh, this 
sounds so general, but this is uh, the most important need, in my opinion, working uh, also close to the Future Science Park from uh, Mogurele, working with entrepreneurs and so on. And secondly, uh, it's a good time to create a new kind of content. Uh, if you are a, a professor in an university, you, you can create a new kind of content. And now we can see uh, nice initiatives like one recently launched in uh, UBB, Babes Boye University, uh, Faculty of Economics, they launched uh, uh, an index about the uh, industries that are suffering most from this crisis. So focus on bridges with the other part, uh, on the... Um, on the industry, on the uh, triple helix or quadruple helix, mm -hmm. and secondly, create content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. We've been talking a little bit about that. And when you mean content, of course, you mean, you know, um, a big part of our discussion, which is what are the new models evolving? Uh, it, it, content, which is also practical in terms of how can you apply these new models? And uh, as Clara mentioned, you know, how can we, and, and, and uh, also Carl mentioned, but how can we accelerate uh, the learning of these new tools, which are not new tools actually, but how can we accelerate the learning uh, of those tools to basically upskill our uh, economies and our workforce? Yeah, thank you very much for that, uh, Claudio. And again, uh, you know, I'll just remind everyone, but if uh, anyone's interested, sign up to our newsletter so you can check out Claudio's report. It's very interesting, Claudio. I'd love to promote that, and I think a lot of people would be interested um, so, you know, looking forward to that. So, uh, uh, let's go to, I'll, I'll, go to Cla uh, I'll go to Carl, so we can leave the, the lady with the last word. <laughs> One second. Actually, it would be in, in this uh, times now with COVID-19 and uh, its impact and disruption on our uh, world of work and societies um, at large scale globally. And within the different nations and their different capabilities, depending on how much resources have they been able to pool and allocate for more problematic times. I mean, it depends between different countries, of course. But generally, I would say also people are sort of calling for all of a sudden for various large <laughs> states who can sort of help us and protect us now in this crisis. You know, it's, it's less about this kind of individual careerism and the uh, Free uh, capitalist markets and stuff like that. All of a sudden, we see a call for the strong state. But I would say the function there, if we would have had already been proactive, implemented uh, basic income, I believe we would have seen much less of the troubles we see now uh, when it comes to the displacements effect. And I would say, so say that we would probably have had a much uh, quicker ability to see new productivity effects from these displacements uh, effects. And it would be lower cost because if you see the amount of billions and trillions of dollars uh, uh, being now funded uh, on a European level and in the United States from the central sort of level of uh, the system to, to, to deal with this, I mean... <laughs> Uh, we're yeah, yeah. we're going to finance basic income. You know, it's uh, it's already there. You know, uh, available to. It's just a smarter way to operate, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't uh, quite know where I stand, but I certainly think that it's one of the you know, in terms of talking about a new economic model, also going forward, it's uh, it's certainly 
a viable solution. And uh, I think you're right. I mean, it would have probably alleviated a lot of the issues we're having currently. And anyways, it, there's a mass bailout going on and it probably would have been a more efficient bailout, you know, and uh, right. uh, an easier transference, let's say, of, uh, of, uh, of skill sets because you would have had a lot less time for people to worry about their jobs being lost, for having the whole period of the bankruptcies involved, which they're going to be a lot. Uh, and uh, and people could just focus on, okay, well, that happened. Now it's time to change. At least we have some support in the roof over our heads, which, you know, I've been very lucky. Our business has lost half their revenue, basically, but I've just been very lucky that we have all the basics provided. And, you know, as a result, I was comfortable at home learning some new skills or, you know, sharpening my uh, my skills and, and doing new content. <laughs> hey, Carl, thank you very much for that.